Welcome to episode 146, talking about and tackling sexual shame with ACT, featuring Erica Miley, licensed mental health counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today we are going to be talking about sex and shame. Ooh, sex. That's a hot topic right there. Today we are joined by Erica Miley. She is a licensed mental health counselor, and this is her jam, is really exploration about sex and sexuality and gender and I'm just delighted to spend this time with her today. Thank you for joining us, Erica. Uh, Beth, you know I'm a fan of yours. So um, I'm just tickled to be here and uh, be getting to hang out with your listeners. And I know when it's in your ears or when you're on your computer, it can feel kind of intimate. So I just feel honored to get to spend time with you and your listeners. Well, thank you. So Erica, why don't you tell us more about you and how you came to have this uh, spicy uh, sexuality specialization? <laughs> so uh, I, I mean, like, this kind of goes kind of goes way back. I mean, luckily, I, I think in my life I had even though I was raised in um, very much an evangelical conservative Christian household, which I no longer belong to any of those things. Um, I, I luckily had a parent, my mother, who encouraged me to ask questions and encouraged my curious nature, which I am yeah, curious um, sometimes <laughs> to a fault, but I think that bodes well as a therapist. I think curiosity can be one of our greatest tools. And I also think it's what drew me to acceptance and commitment therapy is generally, because the use of curiosity within mindfulness is such a huge part of acceptance and commitment therapy. Now, what, but what started me really on the path of sexuality in my career started probably way back when it was inappropriate for me to be watching this show. So uh, I was probably maybe 10 or 11 the first time I saw Talk Sex with Sue on the Oxygen Network. So it was, you know, late night. There was this, at least, in, of course, I was 10 or 11. She appeared to be an older woman to me. She could have been in her 30s or 40s at that time. I don't know. <laughs> but Talk Sex with Sue like, had this impact on me that this woman who was incredibly knowledgeable um, and she could just talk about sexuality and sex toys and the experience of sex within relationships and on your own with such fluidity she could she could just do it and she delighted in it it wasn't something that was um she wasn't just teaching from this place of um we have to get through this kind of like how every sex education class if you ever get one goes it was i am delighting in sharing in this information with you and i want you to delight in your body and be curious about it and so i i think i just took that nod from her and and just it, it infected how I started to see people. And as I went through working through social work and because I did social work before I got my master's degree. And then while I was getting my master's degree, I just noticed like, okay, I have this comfort and I have this enjoyment of, of asking these questions and providing context around sexual life in addition to mental health issues. And I, I again, luckily, had supervisors who were wonderful. I had clinical supervisors that really invested in that curiosity. I had one, but invested in my curiosity and wanting to help people with their sexual in issues in addition to their mental health issues. That my perspective has always been that they, they are one in the same and deeply connected and that we are a system as a human being. We cannot separate these things. That if you're dealing with depression, likelihood there is a likelihood you're dealing with some issue around maybe orgasm or interest or desire or being able to even communicate that to yourself or your partners. If you're dealing with anxiety, you might be struggling with feeling anxious before you want to have sex with a partner. You might, it, I, I deeply believe, again, that we are a physical and mental system that you cannot separate the two. So um, I, one of my clinical uh, supervisors also did work around treating those who've committed sexual crimes. And so um, he really inspired me to kind of zoom out and look at the entire picture of sexuality the best that I could. 
And so I did work with people who have been um, harmed sexually, but I have also worked with people who have harmed others sexually. So I kind of have um, in my experience throughout my career, just again and again and again, um, seeing uh, how deeply interconnected our mental health and our sexual health are and that we cannot as clinicians ignore them. Thank you for that and for such a comprehensive perspective, even just coming out of the gate of how it struck you in childhood and how it shaped your career development now. You already mentioned it, but looking at sex and shame through the lens of ACT. So for our listeners that are not familiar with ACT, can you do a quick primer on ACT, what the acronym stands for, and how you see it as applicable to this particular topic? Now, just like any other evidence-based practice, and we love those evidence-based practices in our field, um, ACT has a significant body of research with lots and lots of uh, evidence to show its effectiveness with lots of different mental health conditions. And I'm saying that for all of you out there getting a CEU <laughs> out there reading, wanting to know where the research is to support this. There's tons of research to support acceptance and commitment therapy, and I'm sure many of you may Maybe you've even taken an ACT training and probably were encouraged if you're working in a community mental health in any, in any way uh, to take any kind of ACT training. But ACT stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. The entire umbrella of ACT, and I'm trying to distill down a theory that requires you to, you know, spend some time with it to really understand it, just like cognitive behavioral therapy, just like dialectical behavioral therapy. ACT is actually in the contextual behavioral sciences, the biggest umbrella for DBT, REBT, all of our alphabet soup that is specific to behaviorism, ACT actually falls within that family, much like uh, compassion-focused therapy, actually. Um, so I'm a bit of a, <laughs> my nerd's showing a little bit. I, I, love, I love how all of these different kind of perspectives are interconnected. Uh, I love the different perspectives of, of how we kind of use them and how we use them clinically. Um, and so I, I encourage you people out there to, to find some theories that really resonate with you, resonate and that sit with you well. And then, but also don't be afraid to, to, to experiment with some of these other contextual behavioral sciences, because there's, there's just a wealth of knowledge. And there's, uh, there is an entire part of that's kind of um, from where ACT started, which involves how we use language and how we use language to impact how we think and then how we behave. Um, and so I encourage y'all, get into it. Let yourself be let yourself be curious and, and and don't judge yourself too much for which which camp you end, end up falling in when it comes to some of these contextual behavioral sciences. But um, ACT in particular takes a stance of non-judgment of the self and that there is a fundamental that there are things about you that are not only just environmental, but biological, that there are just things that you cannot have chosen. And then there is a use of mindfulness to help you understand how did all of those pieces come together, then using mindfulness to change them in the ways that you want to. This again, this is I'm distilling down absolutely <laughs> something that takes I mean, if you go read the the ACT manual. If you go read that book, it's actually a really dense book. It's really, really, really dense. And I actually find, I, I remember when the first time I ever read it and I was like, yo, I, I am ready for some of that act made simple stuff. Um, <laughs> so I encourage you folks to, however you need to understand act, find it. Russ, Russell Harris, he did act made simple and his specifically his um if you are looking for worksheets um russell created an entire workbook around the act model and worksheets and making act simple for you so there's a resource for you if you're looking for something that is concrete because i know i know especially you new therapists out there love a worksheet so that is a, a good place to get them uh, but it, when it comes to diffusing shame, and I use the word diffusion particularly because shame is tricky 
And ACT actually um, spends some time acknowledging that shame is kind of unique in this way, that shame cannot be met with positive affirmations. And then there's actually a body of research to show that positive affirmations are, are, are not as helpful as, as they were once believed to be, um, especially during the um, late 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s, positive affirmations, especially on every talk show, was um, <laughs> regarded as this thing that everybody should be doing. But ultimately, we found that Oftentimes they are not effective, especially when it comes to our bodies, um, beliefs that we have around our bodies, beliefs that we have around our bodies in sexuality. And so one of our jobs is to meet shame where it is, as opposed to expecting it to be at a level that it's not. So for instance, um, I am often helped, helping my clients reframe something in something that they're likely to believe rather than something that they wish they would. So um, I'm trying to come up with a, an example. An example might look like, oh, the, this person, I should not want to, I'm, uh, I'm just preparing people because I'm going to use sexual terms. So just re ready. If y'all are in the car with your kiddos and things like that, this might be <laughs> this might be the one you listen to in your headphones on your own. <laughs> but uh, I have I have shame because I really want to have sex with my feet. I really want to be using my feet during sexual activity. And I shouldn't want that. That's not something humans want to do. I should feel badly for that. So a, a way to kind of diffuse that in your mind is there are lots of things in sex that lots of different people like. This is something that I like. Rather than saying, I should not, or I need to be like anybody else or use like a positive affirmation, like I'm, I, I should not like this, but I'm trying to not like this. Eh, we're not even gonna, we're not even gonna try and not like a thing. We're going to say, no, this is something that I like. And I, I have yet to find a partner to be able to do these things and try these things consensually. And it's okay that I like that. Kind of makes sense. It does make sense. In the room, so a client says, I really am turned on by feet. And that's something I'm really interested in. And I shouldn't like that. And, and there must be something wrong with me. And was this something from childhood, whatever. How do you respond to that in a way that you feel like is act consistent? Usually, there the the work before that moment of trying to find a a diffusion or a reframe of a thought that then will equal a behavior. We're spending a lot of time talking about first cultural shame that is an expectation usually out the gate when it comes to sex. So we're spending a lot of time. Okay, in American culture in particular, you didn't get any education about any of this. And what was it like for you when your parents, when you maybe asked questions or didn't, did they ever talk about it? Was there this nature of secrecy around sex altogether? And so we're spending time just building context to be able to confront that shame monster directly. And that's what's consistent with ACT, is that you are providing context you are using mindfulness, maybe sometimes in the moment, sometimes it's meditation, sometimes it is mindfulness in how you're challenging the thought. And we're going to talk about cognitive diffusion in here down the line. But we are not taking an approach of, I don't want to have this thought. I don't want to do this behavior. I, we're, we're trying to deconstruct the, the shame before we ever get there. And then we're going to take the, we're going to change the language. We're going to challenge the thoughts in the best way that we can, and then set up the behaviors of the sexual life that you actually wanted, rather than that shaming. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, that that fundamental shaming and secrecy that is toxic to the sexual life that you've always wanted to have. Tell me about sex and shame. I mean, those two in our culture are just interconnected <laughs> like it's just unavoidable and i think for many clinicians talking about sex is uncomfortable uh thinking about sex may be uncomfortable making space in the room for it and then so here you are 
being so outspoken and the importance of integrating sex into the therapy room. Tell me about sex and shame and how you see it and all the work that you've done. I, and I, I'm, I might be sounding like um, this isn't to, to come down on therapists because I do not think that this is therapist's fault. And that's consistent with ACT, by the way. It's like we often want to like blame someone. Ultimately, <laughs> it comes down to a lot of this. There's so many factors. One primary factor for therapists in particular is that they don't have any education a majority of the time around sexuality. And if they get one class, they're lucky. They're lucky to get one class in it. And that doesn't take into account how this could be interconnected with what the client is presenting to them. So that fear and shame that they took from not only just their own childhood, but then was carried on through our graduate programs. And it just shows right up in the room. It's just like, hello, hello, old friend. <laughs> I am here to throw you off. I am here for you, for your heart to race. I'm here for you to start to ask yourself if you're a fraud for not being able to manage this or or you experience arousal at the at what your clients are talking about and you don't know how to handle it and when you approach your clinical supervisor about it they shame you for it i can't tell you how many therapists i've worked with consulted with who the shame started in their childhood and didn't stop all the way through their graduate work and in their graduate supervision I've had therapists tell me that they had a, a clinical supervisors tell them that it was unethical for them to talk about sex in session. How, how is that? How, how do we get out from under? <laughs> how can we expect therapists to get out from under shame if it is, if it is institutional? Well, and I, I'm glad you bring up that piece because it is institutional. And, you know, thinking about our medical system and how rarely we consider sex to be that important. The number of times I've talked with clients that have started various meds and they say, oh, well, you know, now I'm inorgasmic. I can't anorgasmic. I can't orgasm or I have very low libido. And that typically the medical response is like, oh, well, I mean, maybe it'll get better. And just this idea of like, well, that's not that big of a deal, you know, or for women who are taking birth control where it's just like, well, you know, sorry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like oh, that's oh, just well. the, the price of this. Right. And that it's this thing that our society collectively has kind of thrown out the baby with the bathwater and this institutional notion, how it carries over in mental health, I think is an important consideration because it's a framework, as you said, it's not that clinicians intend to um, be uncomfortable around this, it's that the framework doesn't support comfort around this, which is exactly why we're having this conversation and why folks like you exist so that we can, all of us, be conceptualizing this differently um, and looking at that marinade that told us, you know, whether, whether it was someone said, we can't talk about this, or it's inappropriate to be attracted or whatever. And, and it just puts all these things in this box that we can't open. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, the social media groups in in the therapy groups, I don't know if any of y'all been in any of those, those are not always helpful in this regard. <laughs> They're really not. And the, the word unethical gets thrown around like it's, <sighs> you should be reporting these people and oh, Wow, especially with having very little conversations with people um, face to face or or even over video calls, I think that's an inappropriate assumption right right out the gate of any situation that is happening for a person or, or for a clinician and a client. Um, but all that being said, like the acceptance part for us clinicians has to begin with it uh, accepting that, it, and this is this is that this is I have several hot takes when it comes to this, but my that you will be aroused by something your client will say to you and that's okay and that it's okay to talk to a fellow clinician that you trust or a clinical supervisor you trust or someone like me as a result of that you're not a failure because your body is responding to something sexual that you may not actually be turned on by oh my gosh we could even just be here all day talking about that that <laughs> body disconcordance is a thing that your genitals can be aroused by something and your mind won't doesn't have to be and that's ultimately like what we find out with people with who've experienced sexual assault that they've experienced orgasms during a sexual assault but they've been terrorized in their mind and they feel guilt and shame as a result of that 
Why did my body respond to this way? I must have liked it in quotation marks. No, you didn't. You were still terrorized. Your body was responding to sexual interaction. That doesn't make it any, any, it does not have a bearing on whether it was right for it to happen or not. Our genitals are full of nerve endings, full of like, and are and for many of us, not all of us, because there are many people out there in the world who their genitals don't respond all that well to any kind of stimulation. And our genitals are not this like very specific shape and size and look. That's part of this, the acceptance piece too, is that if we were all exposed to more understanding about, oh, this is how all these different kinds of genitals look. Oh wait, not all the vulvas in the world look the same. Oh, wait, not all the penises in the world look the same. Oh, not everyone uses the same words for this. Oh, there's cultural traditions to understand around sexuality and, and cultural traditions around religious pieces of sexuality that we should understand as clinicians. And that it is not this very specific, I know I'm kind of like zooming way out and we're, we're, we're supposed to be really narrow in act, but I think that part of the acceptance for us as clinicians is to understand that the heterosexual, white, American cultural way of shame around sex is not what is common across the planet and not what is common for every single one of our clients' experience. I appreciate that you're starting here and taking that angle because I think there is a challenge in there for clinicians and this acceptance of how can we take a client somewhere that we haven't gone ourselves. Um, so I, I, I hear that challenge and I'm glad that you're talking about that piece of it um, because I think there is that idea of whatever the topic is where our insides start to get wiggly and we feel uncomfortable. Um, I love that. I love that metaphor. Insides get wiggly. We, we can't get wiggly. Help it. it feels weird, you know, and our chest kind of feels like it's turning sideways. Um, that whatever the topic is, that we've now waded into an arena that, in a perfect world, we can have time and space to lean in and explore and sit with and have curiosity. But then we're zooming out in the moment with a client being aware of how those assumptions and conditioning and biases are coming up in the room. And that that's part of this conversation about our own impact on a client's experience of sexual shame. It's it, it's always very interesting to me when I when I start hearing um, hard lines from therapists or clinical supervisors about um, and I and I think all of this is interconnected with sex um, and our discomfort with it, like infidelity in particular, like there's, there are some serious hard lines that um, some therapists hold about like, well, if you're not going to be honest with that client, um, if you know about the infidelity and the other person doesn't, then you if you then you end treatment. Um, I hear people talk about like having hard lines about if they um, experience any kind of attraction from that client that you should end treatment. Um, it, the, the hard lines are very interesting to me. And I, and I, I say that with, I try, y'all can't see my face. I'm trying really hard to express that I'm not shaming any one of you for having these perspectives because again, this is institutional and these perspectives, oftentimes these hard lines come from that inability to deal with that discomfort, that inner wiggly self, right? Like that, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable because I don't know what I'm doing. And nobody has ever talked to me about how, about how to, how to deal with, okay, my body is, this person is talking about their interest in BDSM and how that relates to their self-harm. And I am experiencing physical arousal to that. What do I do? What do I do with that in my body? What do I do with that in my mind? And now I am not with the client anymore. I'm in my own body, in my own shame, in my own experience. As you're talking about this, like, obviously, there's this idea of what we're doing outside of the therapy room as being fundamental in our own exploration about our values, our conditioning, our, our, like you said, our uh, marinade from society and the colonialism that's just inherently part of consideration for sexuality in the United States. For you, sex is just such an integrated part of what you do. I'm thinking through the line, through the course of treatment from the assessment 
immediately you're bringing up this idea of sexual health is important, sexuality is important, and your body is important. And so you set the stage with, I imagine, every client you work with about this being fair game in the therapy room. Always. Every single session. Every session. Um, it is it is fair game. How did, how did this impact your sexual life? How did you hear about sex? How did you learn about sex? How was sex talked about or not in your household? I'm throwing, um, y'all, I'm giving you the questions that are actually on my intake, but also there are the questions that I then repeat in the initial interviews. How was, do you have a history of any kind of sexual assault or sexual boundary crossing? We have to keep those things in mind as well, because many people have had sexual boundary crossing that wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily categorize themselves as assault. But they can think about those times they went out on a date or have been catcalled or they can they can they can pull those examples very quickly to their mind. So helping you as a clinician understand that this person is is trying to understand their body and their mind with all of these pieces as factors. And that that is where ACT can really benefit you because you are coming at it from a place of curiosity as a clinician and you are getting all of the pieces of context to then be able to help you get them to a place of acceptance of themselves and their own body experience and their own body autonomy. That is another really important part of what ACT can help us do is that it's not only just deconstructing shame, it is that you have the ability to have autonomy and choices around your own body. And I, I, I work with people with um, uh, ADHD quite often. I work with people with eating disorders quite often. And I can't tell you how many times I've worked with people who have come out of inpatient eating disorder treatment who have nobody has ever talked to them about pleasure in their body, not only just with food, but with sex. And, and so oftentimes we're having to like rewind a bit and help try to understand, okay, what does pleasure actually feel like in your body? And so sometimes the acceptance part is like, we're not even talking about sex yet. We're at the, okay, do you know what it feels like when you experience pleasure when somebody, like when you scratch your own head and you feel that, that, that feel good feeling? I don't know if y'all, y'all can't see me scratch my own head. <laughs> can you connect with pleasure in other ways even? And if, if your medical doctors and, and, and other, maybe other therapists or whatever, what have you have told you that this just doesn't matter that much and you've never experienced any kind of pleasure. So when I'm trying to get you to like work on depression, what's the point if you don't, if you can't identify pleasure at all? Sometimes I think, um, and this is, you know, this is a bias I have. This isn't necessarily uh, all therapists because I have met some really incredibly gifted therapists who do very much try to understand where that client actually is versus where we think they should be in their knowledge. So when you're working with people around their bodies and shame, you really do have to go like way back, like... <sighs> third or fourth grade level sometimes like and if they've had an assault of any kind some sometimes before that where is this person's level of understanding themselves their bodies their feelings their experiences of their physical pleasure where are they going back to that idea about shame it's so systemic to avoid consideration of pleasure even not to mention sexual pleasure but just pleasure in general and our society comes from the idea of many religions, many cultures that have you know created the confluence of what it means to be American, quote unquote, but the idea, this kind of puritanical notion that pleasure is bad and how that plays out. You've talked about the A of acceptance. If we can kind of keep going down the acronym how do you see the C commitment letter as related to sex and shame in this conversation? I, I'm I'm tempted to maybe uh, use uh, a case with themes as much as I can because I think that that's important to understand how this might play out individually for a person, maybe in the therapy room. So. Uh, 
I have worked with many, many a person um, who is non-binary or um, trying to understand where they are in that gender spectrum. And I had a client come to me, this was years ago, who was diagnosed at the time um, with bipolar with psychotic features. First and foremost, let's just talk about um, that they were handed that diagnosis, which is a hefty diagnosis for anybody who has ever worked with anybody who has that diagnosis. It's hefty in understanding how your, bo your body, your mind, and how every part of your life is going to be impacted by that. They were handed that with no information, with no therapist, with no information about the medication they were on, or how it would impact that this person at the time was on uh, hormones. None of that. They were just handed all of these things and said, good luck. Just, I, I could be here all day just talking about how absurd that is, that we would ever do such disservice to another person. I, I can't. Um, but one of the things that we started with was the acceptance of what does psychosis mean? What does it mean when you experience a psychotic episode? How does that impact your body? What does that mean when you're having sex and it happens? What can you do to help calm your mind, your body, and then advocate for yourself with your partner? Eventually, so to, you know, uh, make the, the long story of treatment short, they became to this place of acceptance of their, their experience with psychosis. So when they would have a hallucination, being able to understand that they needed to be able to recover from having a hallucination because of the how the fight or flight or freeze mechanism works inside of our bodies. So there's the acceptance part. I deserve to recover after experiencing something really difficult and scary. That happened while I was having sex with my partner. My commitment is to have that conversation then with my partner of this is what happened. This was not your fault. This was not my fault. It's okay that this happened. Well, it's okay that we're now talking about it and that we're recovering together. I don't have any expectations of you. You don't have any expectations for me. You're using essentially a tool of debriefing which the King community does beautifully. <laughs> but like using commitment to be able to have conversations and practices and routines to be able to continue on that acceptance journey. It looks a little different than some of the um, like act worksheets would have you do. It's not to say that this is wrong or not against act. It's not like the because I, I know sometimes when we get into like a specific um, theoretical perspective we're like, it must be this way. Yeah, it must other. be adherent. No, we're talking about, we're talking about a world in which our theoretical perspectives have to be a little bit more squishy, where you use the umbrella of the treatment and not necessarily adhere to every single technique, like, like it is religious doctrine. This is the art. I, I had this wonderful wonderful professor very retired now oh bless ron oh bless that man and he used to talk so much about the combination of the art and science of therapy and that when you learn a technique when you learn a theoretical perspective to understand that there is an art to challenging a client in the room while also using that theoretical perspective and so when you're working around sex, because our culture and we have our own stuff around sex, we have to be willing to be a little bit more squishy and sit in our discomfort a little bit more and not having every rule written for us. So after this person, coming back to this case, after this person got to the point where they could accept that they have this diagnosis and that they legitimately experience these things, we started to also understand that um, that this person is also neurodiverse. <laughs> this person had was diagnosed with um, when they were younger, and this didn't come out till later in, into our treatment because they have um, um, they had had head injuries when they were younger. I'm trying to describe this without giving too much away. Um, that had impacted their ability to remember. So. It doesn't mean that we were recalling memories. It would just come up in our work as we were starting to talk about like their sexual history or their um, as their family either talked about sex or didn't. They started remembering, oh, wait, like, oh, I, I was diagnosed with autism when I was younger. And so 
that that changed some of the things that how we were tackling commitment because they would need to be or hear more explicitly from their partner very specific directions because they wouldn't necessarily be able to read certain social cues for this person. And there are definitely, uh, I, I could be just on this topic forever, there are definitely biases within our field while also in the, across the medical field around whether or not somebody who has developmental disability should experience sexual pleasure. So we're having to do some trauma work too to help them be able to accept, oh, okay, it's all right for me to, to consensually have the sexual partner that I've been with for a long time. It's okay for me to ask the things that I would like to do and try. If I am interested in BDSM, it isn't necessarily self-harm. And how do I continue to practice the mindfulness that I can do that is might have to look different than some of like... ACT has some really wonderful, let me just say this, they have some really wonderfully tested um, guided meditations that can be really, really helpful. I actually have them sitting next, sitting next to me right now that I use for, my, for some of my people that can tolerate those kinds of meditations. But when it comes to neurodiversity and sexuality, we might be talking about a different kind of mindfulness. We might be talking about a more active form of mindfulness because they may not be able to attend to a seated guided meditation. Or if your folks that you're dealing with have experienced sexual trauma, they may not be able to sit in their bodies yet. So again, this comes back to the art and this comes back to the person that's in front of you and, and what can they tolerate and how can we make the connections between all of these things to dismantle shame, help them commit to a life that is embracing whatever mental health issue that they're dealing with while also embracing their own sexual self, whatever that looks like. As you're talking about this, I hear this undercurrent of slowing down, of slowing down in the details, not just glossing over it. And I'm reminded of a session that I had where, you know, there was this disclosure and I remember like putting my hands up and saying, hold on back up. <laughs> like it was just like, well, then this thing happened and then the doctor did this and then I went home and I'm like, whoa, hold on back up, back up, back up, up. Tell me more about that doctor's appointment. And it absolutely fell into the category of sexual shame on what had happened. And that idea of really kind of swirling around there. And that's, I think, another source of discomfort for clinicians. It, it's like when we feel that like, eh, we don't we don't need to look under that. And, and, you know, clinically, sometimes we decide we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. And we put a little pin in it and we save it over here till another time in the future. Because it's of course in the last 10 minutes moments. of session, because that's when it always happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, we have we have that too, where there's an element of strategy. But as you're talking about this, I can hear that importance of really slowing it down and working with a present focus for the narrative that is that has been constructed around that experience and then kind of unwinding it really slowly and gently. And you you mentioned in the importance of even just starting in the assessment of creating safety around that and then allowing the time to unwind. I, I felt lucky that I actually have received training from Kelly Wilson more than once. The first time I was ever introduced to ACT, which was when I was in graduate school. And then again, while I was working in the prison setting, working with those who'd committed sexual crimes. So I feel, um, I don't feel too bold in saying what I'm about to say. Kelly in particular has a perspective of depathologizing a lot of things that we want to, well, maybe not as clinicians, we don't necessarily want to, but the system that we work within wants to pathologize. We want to have a diagnosis to be able to bill insurance quite often. And at least from Kelly's perspective, the way that I have understood it from not only just his working from reading many of his books, because I just tend to, I tend to resonate with him and his writing style more than I do some of the other creators of ACT. Uh, don't get me wrong, Stephen Hayes is great. Um, but Kelly actually comes from, um, the working doing addictions work so it is this understanding of deep wells of pain and deep wells of trauma that we will often in in our 
in our field will pathologize the behaviors that then come out of that. Specifically, I think a, a good a good reference to sexuality in in particular is around kink and BDSM. Uh, often, our community of therapists generally. Uh, now, this is definitely not all therapists because I, as I'm I'm getting my PhD in clinical sexology, as we're as as this episode is going, I'm in the middle of my dissertation. Uh, I have worked with some incredible clinicians that are building their entire practices around helping people understand kink and helping them understand how BDSM can actually be part of your trauma treatment. It's a hot take, y'all. Like a lot of people will screen and see bruises and marks and assume that they are bad or that the person is self-harming and that that should stop immediately. Now. That doesn't, this is not to to say like that all self-harm is fine. No, no, we're not sitting in absolutes here. I am saying though that when you're working with somebody and they've got bruises all over their arms, it's up to you to kind of sit in the curiosity seat and maybe not in that first session, maybe a few sessions down the road, once you've got a little bit of that rapport built, that you can ask about those. And you can ask about them from a curious perspective and even maybe throw out there, like some people do this for pleasure. I'm trying to understand like, what does this mean to you? And then not reacting that you have to report them immediately. I think that qualification that you just made too, of some people do this for pleasure, going back to what you'd said earlier on about the concept of shame diffusion, that, that idea that whatever the sexual behavior is, that I, client, human being, must be wrong. I should not be doing this or I should be doing something else. And just even that phrase, those few words just kind of went, oh, you mean other people do this too and you know about it? Um, is such a fundamental part of the work, I think in general, but also like sex and shame particularly because they're just so interconnected. Can you talk more about the beliefs and values that go into act the time orientation like is it present is it future is it past like kind of name some of these facts and how you see them in application to sex and shame and this work that you're doing as much as context is important in act the present moment is the most important like the here and now and what is happening in the here and now is the most important part at least as time as far as time reference goes for act um and ultimately, as a therapist, I will play, I will play and sit in this, this seat of, okay, we're going to take some context from the past, we're going to see how you're worrying about this, these future worries that you're putting in, but we're going to uh, pull that right back here. What now what is happening right this moment in your life that both of these things are showing up in? And that kind of context can be just in, in its in its existence can be destigmatizing. Because you're bringing those things like, oh, look, these two things from these extremes that I like to, you want to, <laughs> we love to, to ruminate about the past and we love to worry about the future. When in reality, like the only thing you have at all in front of you is the here and now. That's it. That's all you got. So what is happening right now in your sexual life? What is happening right now in your mental health and Yes, we can start doing and changing things and understanding your values to help you dictate your future behavior. But again, you cannot predict it. As badly as you'd want to, you cannot predict your future behavior. So when it comes to values, I think that this is, <laughs> uh, I developed a way to kind of understand your own sexual values because ACT doesn't necessarily uh, hit that in its like when you look at some of the worksheets and and things about like understanding what your deepest held beliefs and and things that really really truly drive you the sexual values are not necessarily in there and a majority of the time i think that that is is because of that systematic cultural shame that we have said that oh, okay the only the only commentary on sexual values that culturally we can have is religious that is some baloney. <laughs> I have so many other swear words for that. When it comes to the the religious perspective, especially in the United States, that that is often where we people are left with their values is is what they were told when they were young about what was okay sexually. 
And a, a lot of times that is culturally created either by family or by whatever church or religious organization that person was was exposed to. Uh, for me, uh, it was definitely evangelical Christianity, and I grew up during the purity movement. Like, <laughs> I had my own serious sexual shame as a woman. And, you know, I, I don't mind sharing this about myself as a bisexual woman, understanding what it meant for all of that sexual shame, all of those sexual expectations of me as a woman, what that meant about marriage, what that meant about my own want for certain sexual behaviors, and how did growing up with all of that sexual shame impact me in the here and now? So that's where it's bringing back to act, right? Like is how did those things dictate what is happening in my behaviors now? And what acceptance work could I do, which I've done a lot of, to accept that there are things that I like, there are things in ways which I want my body to be touched, and there are things that I would like to request from my partner consensually that are not, in quotation marks, a sin. And that, that the only sexual experience that is valid is within marriage. I had to break that one down, oh, big time, for myself, because that's where my that's where my family cultural understanding about sex was rooted. So I had to break down that sexual shame so that I could even ask for what I wanted to do sexually. I have worked with clients who have been through conversion therapy, who it show even though that that conversion therapy. Um, it's not to make this sound small, but the conversion therapy happened when they were young one and they may be in their 30s or 40s now, it still is impacting them in the here and now. And that is why it is applicable to the here and now. So like one of the ways to establish maybe some of your sexual values is to start asking yourself some of those questions, even as a clinician, and maybe even go through this exercise with your clients, which is asking, how was I raised with conversation about sex sexual health? Has religious expression impacted my ability to connect with my sexuality? Is this still important to me? Is this religious perspective still important to me? Have I negotiated sexual pleasure with myself or with my partner before? A majority of the time, at, when I meet with couples, when I meet with throuples and, and lots of different relationship configurations and individuals, they've never said no when they really wanted to. And I, that says a lot to me that regardless of your genitalia, we're, we're all doing this in some way. Culturally, for many of us women, it's it's a lot of our lives, but like... I hear this equally across the board. I, I hear this from, I, I have, can't tell you how many times I've worked with, you know, a, a, a cis heterosexual man who, who didn't say no to his wife because he wasn't into it at that moment, but felt obligated. And did he, did he, did he cross his own boundaries and did he cross his own values in that? And what does it mean to negotiate a sexual interaction with your partner, even though you've been married for 25 years? So I, I, I ask very specific questions about like how how so, so that you can arrive at like what is important to you sexually and it's not always about the sexual behaviors sometimes it's about getting permission to have autonomy over your own body there's so much here in this discussion about values and how it shapes how we respond to things in here and now and i think that example you just gave about you know, regardless of anybody's genitalia, that I think it's easy to assume that we don't build on the shame or the suffering as we age, or that we somehow would prevent it or be more autonomous. But the example that you just gave, I think is a perfect example of that, what's happening in the here and now. And how is that potentially um potentially perpetuating shame and suffering and these belief systems and values that until we deconstruct them, we can't rebuild them to have something that's actually working for a client or for ourselves for that matter. Because I, I can't tell you how many people who are, who've come into my office who are like, I am not part of this faith anymore, but I feel badly when I want to ask my partner to, encourage some anal play because that's only for gay men like uh, just that so y'all can't see my my 
my frustrated, sarcastic face with, with that statement. It is fundamentally like these beliefs can very much impact our current values or our current behaviors or our current shame, like an un, like 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 the that undercurrent, for lack of a better way to put it, of how it's showing up in our lives today. I, I I even go as far as to say, are, are is this shame limiting your ability to access medical care you need? Are you getting regular STI testing? Are you getting regular uh, any kind of prostate check you might need? Do you know how many men I have worked with who are worried about getting a prostate check because of what it might mean if they enjoy having their anus touched? Like, that. Eh. It's about cancer and you're worried about, like, you are very worried. And I, I don't say that, I kind of giggle, but it's like, it, that to me tells me how systematic that you need a life-saving screening and you're worried about how it might impact your masculinity. I, and I don't judge them for that because they didn't come by that. They didn't, they weren't born with those ideas. That is culturally driven entirely. Part of how you do what you do through this interview is I hear how you are carrying yourself as, I don't know if, I don't know if example is the right word, but to steal Brene Brown's language, you're, you're stepping into the arena about sex, about shame, about vulnerability, and then kind of saying, okay, the water's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Join me in here. The water's fine. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and and I think that that distinction for clinicians is really important because I hear this building upon past conversations that we've had within clearly clinical episodes even of just um, being the first one to bring up whatever the thing is to talk about the the murder to talk about whatever the thing is that had happened in the news to, to make space for those things because we're like afraid where it's like, well, what if they think that that, you know, was great and I don't or, you know, that I think collectively what I'm hearing is the importance in this consideration. We're talking about sex and shame of being okay with being in that water ourselves and then saying to a client, you know, the water is fine if, if you want to get in when you want to get in the water is fine and not forcing them into the water, <laughs> not pulling them into it. Um, but I, I can hear the importance of how you are then carrying yourself clinically in the room and just that being a foundational intervention in and of itself. That uh, for lack of a way to put it, like being a sex Sherpa, I feel like is part of it. <laughs> like it is, it is very much like, okay, I, I had to w- wade into this water myself. And so I do not expect any comfort from you in trying to figure this out because it was really scary for me to do too. And I, I think when we are at our best, yes, of course, we are experts. We, we have gone to school for a long damn time to get to this place. We are experts, but we do our best work when we walk with and I think in this way, this is one of those places where we can walk with and and we can hold this line of keeping our own privacy because every single one of us therapists has a different perspective on this and how much you want to share and how much you're willing to share. But the thing that we, a lot of us share, especially here in the United States, is this deep, scary thing around our bodies, pleasure, autonomy, and the impact on our culture at large and our education around it. So of course you're scared. I was scared too. And it's okay, it's okay to start there. Through this interview, we've skimmed the surface in the application of ACT to sex and shame. For clinicians who are listening to this going, I need to know more, um, where do they find that more? And what does the kind of reading list, podcast list, whatever it is look like for clinicians that are realizing that they wanna do more work in this arena? So I definitely would encourage some folks, I, I already dropped uh, Russ, Russ Harris's name, like if you are really interested in some of the work, especially the worksheets and making act simple on you so that you can um, use some of these techniques. We did, We haven't even talked about like cognitive diffusion techniques and how I encourage my people to create some of their own ACT has a wonderful list of cognitive diffusion techniques. It's essentially using a mindfulness technique to identify a thought or an uncomfortable experience, see it, 
acknowledge it, and then allow it to pass. That is the fundamental, uh, most basic definition of what a cognitive diffusion technique does. But like, the more I encourage my clients to create some of their own, the more impactful it is, especially if it is specific to sex. Um, I had a client who came up with one, and it's still one of my favorites, you know, plays on my nostalgia in a big old way. Uh, pictures like the old school duck hunt game. And like pictures, the old school yellow, not yellow, orange, bright orange gun controller and shooting the thoughts or the uncomfortable things that like just keep popping up, shooting them down and hearing the sound, seeing the dog come up and laugh. And then they can let that thought like go on by. It's accepting that the mind is a machine that is made to think. It is not a truth teller. It is an association machine. It's this, oh, this is an easy, here's the information. This is easy access. It's going to throw a lot of stuff at you. ACT would tell you, like, we get hooked by all kinds of thoughts, especially the thoughts that line up with some of our beliefs. And if our beliefs are rooted in shame, that is why those thoughts end up hooking us the deepest. That's why cognitive diffusion can be really, really effective in helping us understand okay, this is a machine. This brain just keeps on thinking. It's going to keep thinking until the day I die. It's just offering me something. And I don't necessarily have to give that any more weight than any other thought. That that bottom basement core thread throughout ACT can absolutely pay off when it comes to sexual life, your sexual life. That concept, the language that's always stuck with me is the idea of a mental event that there's just something so freeing in that language of act because then it it it's just this thing that happened we don't need to necessarily buy into it i'm i can imagine unicorns running through my office even as we speak and that doesn't mean that it's actually happening or that it's factual um i mean it would be kind of cool <laughs> if it were actually happening <laughs> but, but I, and I, I, I appreciate I that you're you totally that right up. I, that just that freedom back to the case we were talking about earlier, that freedom of my folk, my person who had really significant hallucinations and starting to understand that this was not something they chose. So we're de deconstructing the shame and that they could react to it as a mental event and that they had permission to recover. Like that, just that them being able to do that. Yes, they had med medication on board. Yes, they had routines on board. Yes, they had all of these other things that we created around their life. But the freedom that they were offered of acceptance of something they didn't choose, it, it, it has allowed them to graduate from therapy. They didn't have to stay in therapy for the rest of their life. They're always welcome back for a tune-up. But it's okay to trust our clients when they've, when they've got it. Erica, you and I could keep talking about this. I mean, there's so much here, this <laughs> this topic. it I think it strikes everybody because of the sensationalism and how just talking about sex in clinical practice is like, you what? And like you said at the beginning of like, what about when we're attracted to clients? Or what if we find ourselves aroused where it's like, oh, you've done something wrong, and then we just built upon it. Um, but I, I'm glad you brought up some of these concepts, because I think for a lot of people, it may be the first hearing of like, oh, this is okay. And I can I can think about this, and I can sit with it, and I can explore it. And I, I appreciate your perspective, too, which is like the macrocosm microcosm phenomenon. And a as above as below. And so while we are sitting here working with our clients, working through acceptance and commitment simultaneously, or in a perfect world, in advance going through that ourselves, um, to sit with what's coming up, I think is really important. So I'm, I'm glad that we kind of started there. And I think we're ending there. For people who are listening and want to know more about your work and how to follow you, how do they do that? So uh, part of the reason I ever started a podcast was to just put information in a place that I could go back to. <laughs> so I'm uh, well over 130 episodes deep of my podcast, Sex Talk with Erica Miley. And I have interviewed some incredible people, but also have spent a lot of time myself talking about not only just my therapeutic perspective, but like, what does it mean to do act in therapy? What does it mean to deconstruct shame? Um, and then you will also hear from other researchers. You're also going to hear from people from all over the sexuality world. You're going to hear from sex workers. You're going to hear from people who create sex dolls so that you can start to get 
Um, I think some of the personally, I really do believe this, that when we are exposed to people and cultures and things that we have never seen before, and we start to understand that it exists in the world, I fundamentally believe that that can change how we approach our clients. So my essential whole point of this show is for people to be exposed to all sorts of interests and, and nerdy stuff and, <laughs> and that that it's, I promise it's, it's the water's okay. Right. So it's sex talk with Erica. That's the website. Um, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts and, um, my practice, it's a group practice. I am always looking for other therapists. It's mentalandsexualhealth.com. Um, and all the therapists that work for me, they get consultation for free. They get, and you don't have to be a sex therapist to work for me. Um, because here's my other hot take. I didn't get to disclose. I really find the importance of sex education and the education around clinical work is really important, but I don't know that I think it should be a specialty. Well, thank you, Erica. It's always nice to spend time with you. And and I think you shared a lot that we are going to be thinking about and chewing on and and reflecting about. So thank you. Uh, It's always lovely to see you. And um, thank you for having me. And any of the hate mail y'all got, come at me. Leave Beth alone. (laughs) Erica at (laughs) ericamiley.com. Thank you so much, Erica. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.